that was a huge a huge bird just flew into my window. So if I am absent later, it's the whole Tippy Hendren and Alfred Hitchcock thing going on here. <laughs> no I have a dream. This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Never let anybody tell you who you are. You tell them who you are. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Rob Long and Peter Robinson. I'm James Lalling, and today, one guest, Chris Christie, the Let's Have Ourselves a Podcast. I can hear you! Welcome, everybody. It's the Ricochet Podcast, number 566. Why don't you join us at ricochet.com? You, too, can be part of the most stimulating conversations in community on the web. I'm James Laddox in Minneapolis with my dog barking madly in the background at the guy who's cutting the it's, lawn for the last it's time atmosphere. this year. Atmosphere. For the, the Rob Long is uh, atmospherically somewhere else. Looks to be in some sort of New Orleans fall of the House of Usher type place with gothic settings and crepuscular <laughs> light coming through the window. Peter is in his usual library, it seems. Uh, gentlemen, how are you this week? I'm doing very well. I'm in Oxford, Mississippi. That's where I am. Oh, the uh, learned I'm, place. Yes. I'm in a, uh, it's, it's, it's in a, 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 the Graduate Hotel is one of those, like, there's like, they're all over, these chains are all over um, college towns, and they're sort of nice hotels with giant lobbies, and the students hang out, uh, <laughs> and there's free Wi-Fi, and that's where I'm staying for the Southern Foodways Alliance Symposium, and I'm presenting um, tomorrow, and I'm missing, just how devoted I am to our project together, I'm missing a bunch, of very interesting conversations. Just gave a very moving award. I know this other stuff going on uh, to a family, a father and a son, who uh, he was a crabber for a long time in Georgia. And six or seven years ago, he started farming oysters in Georgia, on the Georgia coast. And um, you know, just a beautiful movie, just a, a beautiful short film of them. And just incredibly, if you can't, if you watch that and you are still in despair, then I can't help you. I mean, I'll put a link to the movie. If you've got some time, you should watch this. The very short. It's like about six minutes, seven minute documentary. Just talk about their lives. It's, be- it's beautifully shot. Um, filmmakers Joe York, who's done a lot of movies for us, and I, I'm just still a glow of the beauty of that film. So, still in um, despair, he says. What a typical Pollyanna attitude from a rootless cosmopolitan, floating <laughs> around, yeah. flitting from city to city, not yeah. realizing that depression and uh, slump-shouldered uh, resignation is the only way to go. Uh, I don't agree, but uh, perhaps Peter, Peter, you uh, are James. I am reminded of what California. You said that the the fellow is mowing your lawn for the last time. Mm-hmm. And when we first moved to California, yay, these many years ago from the Northeast, where my wife and I both grew up, we rented, we've moved on since then, but we rented a little house and I was thrilled because the house, small as it was, the house had an almond tree, an orange tree, a couple of cherry trees, a lemon tree, a plum tree, wow, a persimmon yeah. tree, California, all kinds of bushes and shrubs and so forth. And I went out there the first weekend and I, small house, tiny yard, fifth of an acre, tops. And it took me five hours. We had little kids too who wanted to, it took me five hours to do the 
cutting cutting this back and pruning that. And then the next weekend came and it took the same amount of time. And then what really threw me, I mean, if you get you begin to get the picture here that my pleasure in this is beginning to diminish and really rather rapidly. <laughs> You're not a farmer, I, Peter. I think it's very I go outside and the squirrels have eaten all the almonds, every last <laughs> almond. And then the time of year comes when I instinctively feel that this sort of nonsense should end. Because in the Northeast, as in Minnesota, there comes a moment when you mow the lawn for the last time. Yes. But in California, James, you never do. It just goes on and on and on. You are Sisyphus mowing the lawn and pruning the trees, and there's nobody who needs 500 plums, which is what one plum tree can produce. Anyway, it turned into my dream of California. I got over it in about six months, and by about December and January, when all this stuff was still growing, it had turned into a total nightmare. Sorcerer's Apprentice, a plum yes. uh, stone of stone fruits. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Damn this golden fecund land. <laughs> exactly, yes. right. It's true. What uh, it's game true. are they playing now with me? Uh, that I do remember that. I remember like when we were kids growing up in Northern California, and we had a cherry tree, and you could stand, and we had a swimming pool, and you could st we'd stand on the cherry tree, and someone said, well, you need to harvest all the cherries. So we harvested all the cherries, and we just threw them into the pool. And the pool was like oh. two inches, like it was like cherries. Like a, it looked like a cranberry bog. And then you scoop them out, and then you, um, you, you know, just too many. You washed them, you froze them, and um, ate them. Oh, because that, that gave them a kind of chlorine rinse. It killed I was whatever. just going to say that, that special right. chlorinated yeah. Yeah, well, tang that, that the cherry The 70s, liked. we didn't care. <laughs> yes, well, we had one apple tree when I was growing up, and I bagged them all, put them in my radio flyer red wagon, and went door to door selling them, um, which is my first experience with capitalism. You could sell apples in North Dakota? I, I, uh, this to me, seems to me like the kind of thing everybody would have plenty of. Yes, they did, but they, it's a pity purchase when the little neighborhood guy comes. You oh, don't want to sour him little Jimmy Lilas. I see. Yeah, right. Jimmy Lilas. Which, which, which no one called me. Well, speaking of capitalism. <laughs> they, the only, or they only called you that once. That was, he called me that once. We have uh, an interesting uh, set of circumstances that seem to be coming to us now. You know, every, I was thinking about this the other day. Everybody talks about the black swan as the thing that nobody expected. It seems like what we have here are a, a cloud of black starlings. That one or two of them perches on your eaves and you think nothing of it. But when all of a sudden they get together in a concatenated mass and swirl above you in an oddly coordinated movement, you think something is amiss, something is strange, something is ominous. Between the ports and the inflation and the uh, empty shelves and the Christmas that won't be and the surging natural gas prices, why are I'm supposed to pay 50% more in natural gas this winter? I was under the impression that we had that stuff coming out of our bleeps but apparently not so you have all of these things coming together and even though well, i don't we do excuse we do we yeah. do james you understand what's happening here i don't know i do know of course yes i do all right but john Kerry thinks it's bad for the climate so you need to pay 50 percent more and i understand now some people think that it's joe biden's fault i don't i think he's senescent and and out of touch with us and they put a piece of paper in front of him and he signs it some others think that this is a grand plan of a socialist cabal that wants to wreck america and bring us down to the rebels so they can rebuild i tend to go with the uh incompetence on many levels and unforeseen circumstances and unexpected consequences uh, what say you guys and do you think that people will in the end blame biden for this spoiler yes i have been enormously cheered 
by two events in the last two or three weeks. The first is that President Xi of China seems really determined to reassert communism. Terrific! We need the Chinese to get in their own way right now. That looks as though it's going to happen. The second is that these starlings are coming home to roost. I'm trying to pick up on your your choice of bird, James. Half hours to bird metaphor. The starlings are coming home to roost faster than I had expected, meaning that, yes, of course, there were supply chain, but the lockdown is largely their doing in any event. That's a separate matter, but but they're doing everything wrong, and reality is asserting itself. And what has me so cheered is that Biden's poll numbers have turned south already. Ordinary Americans have figured out that this guy is messing things up, and it's happening faster than I would have expected. And we have now spontaneous – by the way, is this – I do I neither of you is Catholic, but do I need to go to confession over this? Because I have so enjoyed. Yes. I mean yes. cackled and gloried in yeah. let's go, Brandon. <laughs> well, no. It's special. I'm sure there's a special exemption for that in your in your religion, there always is. Um <laughs> Yeah, the Let's Go Brandon stuff. But I think the Let's Go Brandon stuff is um uh, for people who don't know, there's somebody uh, uh, – I think it was a NASCAR race. Uh, the, yes. the, the crowd was chanting um, a very popular Anglo-Saxon uh, uh, curse word um, a, a followed by uh, Joe Biden and the – behind – during an interview, and the interviewer uh, either didn't understand the words or pretended that they were shouting, let's go, Brandon, because she was the person you speak to is Brandon. And so people are now saying, let's go, Brandon. Uh, and I think this I think this is actually significant because what it is, it's Samizdat, right? It's underground yes, it, jokes. It beautifully put. Beautifully That's what put. this is. This is people saying um, we don't buy it and we're going to make jokes. And the minute they start doing that, I think it's very, very powerful and hugely undermining You know, to be a figure of – and I don't think Joe Biden is the victim. Is is really the is the greatest victim here? I mean, he's the president. He's going to pay the price. I think the, what what what's reality is that it's the media, it's the people saying we know you lie, we know that you, and you are lying to our face right now, and we know it, and you know we know it, and we're going to make fun of you. And I, to me, it's great. I, I I just two data points I saw. Um, well, one data point uh, from a friend of mine, old friend of mine, who's a, a, a original Ricochet OG. Uh, uh, he has three children, and they are of you know sort of spread out in age. Not you know a post college, college, and pre college. Post college, um, kind of like probably politically somewhere in the conservative Democrat, liberal Republican kind of way. It, current college, woke. Pre college, pretty right wing. And he says this because there's a generation that that probably is try they're, they're trying to indoctrinate, and the indoctrination is so terrible and so ham-fisted, it's it so let go Brandon. They are now a figure of fun. So I think that is a a data point of hope. Second thing is we're walking around San Francisco. It's, we had a, a a ricochet meeting this week. We had a lovely dinner. We had a great conversation. We did some business, and then the next day I went to have uh, lunch with my friend, and we were walking around San Francisco. And San Francisco was traditionally filled with insane lunatics and nuts, right? And uh, they're all – they're still there, a lot of other problems too. But we're walking along the Embarcadero, and this white van is coming 
along the Embarcadero, and somebody's on the van on the loudspeaker, you know, like broadcasting really? to people, like, yeah, you know, which they always do, like crazy people do. I'm sure it's like, there's fluoride in the water, and they're, they're trying to control your brain, or, you know, some of the, you know, like Ronald Reagan is, you know, from outer space, all that stuff, crazy. As the, <laughs> as the van gets closer, we're like, wait, what's he saying? And he's saying this. The mask mandates are not necessary. The vaccine is effective. They're trying to control you by keeping the masks on. Schools should be open. Children are not vulnerable to the virus. He's basically he, he's broadcasting the truth wow. to a city full wow. of crackpots. It's completely <laughs> inverted. It's traditionally it's the crackpot yes, broadcasting yes. to the city of normals, <laughs> and now it's the one normal guy. Just with a microphone, <laughs> so just trying to say. And he says, "Remember, they told you that you could take the mask off, and then two weeks later you had to put it back on. That's it's crazy. Come on, now it's over." And he basically is saying the same things that our good friend and genius uh, Jay Bhattacharya is saying, and that That's smart hilarious. people are saying. <laughs> but he's he's using, you know, when in Rome, when in Rome, you broadcast like a crackpot. I was just in an airport last weekend and uh, experienced a return to the world of masks, airplanes, yeah. waiting rooms, and the rest of it. It was reminded how much I hated it. And the airport itself was a desiccated experience because half the restaurants were gone. And when I went to Steak Shack to ask if they were opening up because I saw a guy behind the counter, he said, nope, half my night shift called in sick, didn't have any workers. Place right next to him wasn't open, didn't have any workers. Right. But the great thing in the muse- in the uh, at the Phoenix uh, airport was you could go outside and observe art. And inside, in a glass case, there was art. So you had your compensations. You're going to die of hunger, but here's some art. The thing of it is, though, is that life is more than food. Life is art. Now, let's back up for a second here and let me tell you something. The global pandemic we've been going through, right, it's completely disrupted the markets. And a reckless spending from the Pelosi-Biden administration is only making things worse. So finding promising places to invest your hard-earned $100,000 nest egg is tougher than ever. If you're like me, or the rest of America, for that matter, you're probably heavily allocated to equities, right? Which is exactly what every report from the Wall Street Journal to City is telling us not to do. And they're projecting equity returns from 5% to actually going negative. In an inflationary world, that's a nightmare. Well... With the Fed off printing trillions of dollars on Congress's monstrous infrastructure bill, it does not take a genius to see that your money needs a safe haven, and it needs it now, right now. So how are professional investors preparing for this nightmare scenario? They've turned to an under-the-radar asset class, one that is historically only been available to the coastal elites and the hedge fund managers. It's a real physical asset that isn't gold or real estate or anything related to crypto. It's actually fine art. See, I was talking about that stuff that they saw at the airport. I would actually love to own some of this stuff, or just a piece of it. Art, it's one of the oldest and most stable asset classes of all time. And thanks to a revolutionary tech platform, you can actually get access to this exciting $6 trillion world. Early adopters have already returned 32% of their investment, and their wait list keeps getting longer. Lucky for you, they have given me 60 passes to skip that wait list. To jump to the front of the line, head to masterworks.io slash ricochet. That's masterworks.io slash ricochet. Previous offers have sold out in hours, so do not wait around. This sounds fascinating, doesn't it? You'll find out more at masterworks.io slash ricochet. And see the important disclaimers at masterworks.io slash ricochet as well. Slash disclaimer. And we thank Masterworks for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And now we welcome to the podcast, Chris Christie. 
Political commentator, lobbyist, former federal prosecutor, served as the 55th governor of New Jersey from 2010 to 2018. You can catch him on ABC News, where he appears regularly, or follow him on Twitter, at GovChristie. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, uh, let's start with the future, shall we? Uh, when you were on the aforementioned ABC This Week show, you said, quote, every election is about tomorrow, end quote, and you dismissed the idea that 2024 will be about 2020. Or 2020, will 2022 be about 2028? Are both parties too hung up in the past, fixated on Trump? Are you over Trump, and do you think everybody else should be? What do you think is going to be on the plate in 2022 and 2024? Well, look, I think if you want to win, you can't be relitigating 2020. Um, you know, the, 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 the former president has made it, you know, his business um, since election night in 2020 to continue to try to relitigate that. And to me... Not only is there no evidence to be able to support what he's saying, but worse than that, um, most of the American people are well over it. And if you want to try to win elections, you got to talk about their hopes, their aspirations, and, and what they want for their future. Uh, and they're not, certainly not going to want to be talking about, you know, what happened in Arizona or, or Michigan or Pennsylvania. Um, but the president still wants to continue to talk about that. In fact, you know, he sent out a press statement two days ago where he said that unless – um, the election fraud from 2020 is resolved, and I don't know what he means by that, um, then Republicans should not vote in either 22 or 24. I mean, look, you know, that's the kind of stuff that's incredibly destructive to the party and ultimately destructive to the country. Um, so I, I think that elections have always been about tomorrow, and in this instance, for us to win, it's even more important for us to make it that way. Governor, I, I'd just like to pursue that for a moment. You know what? There are a lot of Republicans who are tiptoeing around the subject of Donald Trump, and you just did something pretty remarkable. You came right out and told us what's really on your mind. So let me let me. So you're the man to, to whom to put this next question. I I probably shouldn't reveal the names here. I'm sure I shouldn't because it was incompetence. In any event, this is a report to me from a friend who was with at dinner with someone who is considering running for president in 2024. And the question was, if Donald Trump runs once again for the Republican nomination, will you run against him? And the candidate reply, or the prospective candidate replied, well, I keep thinking about it and thinking about it, and here's all I can see. If I run against him for the Republican nomination and lose, I've lost. If I run against him for the Republican nomination and I win, Donald Trump being Donald Trump, Will, do, will hold it against me and do everything he can to make sure that I lose in the general election so I will have lost again. If Trump decides to run, <laughs> I'll stay out because it would be lose-lose. Does that make sense to you? No, not at all. Not at all. I, I, look, if, if you're afraid of Donald Trump, then you have no business running for president at all, whether he's in the race or he's not. Because Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping are going to be much more difficult to deal with, um, as are the Ayatollah in Iran, as is Kim Jong-un in North Korea. Um, you know, there are going to be big problems around the world and at home to deal with. Um, and if you're scared of Donald Trump, then you have no business running for president at all, in my view. Um, you know, I haven't decided what I'm going to do or not do, but I will tell you this. My decision will be my decision. It won't be based on whatever anybody else tries to, is, it does, Donald Trump or anybody else who, who's being talked about in terms of running for president in 24. Okay, I got one more question. Rob, I know, wants to come in and ask about vaccination, the politics of the vaccination, and so forth. Uh, 
<clears throat> are you surprised that Biden's poll numbers are, are trending down as quickly as they are? And in some sense, excuse me, the background, we were talking about this before you came on. I honestly find it kind of heartening. The administration's doing everything that the liberals and progressives want, as much as they can get through Congress. They're screwing everything up, and the American people are already on to them, is the way it looks to me. What do you think? Look, I, I'm surprised because I didn't think he would screw up this badly this quickly. I think it's just the pace of the screw-ups that is, is breath. Um, you know, the, the Afghanistan uh, situation was disgraceful from a military perspective, but also from a strategic perspective. Um, you know, if you're going to leave, and he made the decision to leave, you get all the unarmed people out before you get That's the it. armed people out. I mean, I don't think you need to be George Patton um, to figure that one out. And the fact that they did that in reverse um, was an extraordinary blunder, which led to a lot of things um, that I think are, are really, really problematic for him. And the other reason I think they've dropped so quickly, Peter, is that uh, people really get resentful when you govern differently than you campaign. Joe Biden campaigned as a moderate uniter who was going to try to bring both parties together and craft compromise. He has governed as an unapologetic left liberal. And the American people see it. And a lot of the white, educated suburban voters who voted for him and who made the difference in this race, I suspect now are appalled as to what's happening and, and feel like he played the bait and switch with them. And so I think that's the other reason the numbers have gone down so quickly. Pure incompetence is number one. Number two is inconsistency with brand. The worst thing you can do as a politician is do things which are inconsistent with your brand. Once you do that, the public believes um, that you're a phony. And once they believe you're a phony, um, it's, it's, it's very hard to be seen as being effective as a leader. Hey, Governor, it's Rob Long and uh, calling from Mississippi. I wanted to thank you for joining us. But when you mentioned authenticity, I should tell you that when you were, I think it was your first term, first term as a governor, maybe the first six months of governor, um, and I was in L.A. and I was with you know, writing television, uh, and I had scriptwriter friends, very few, you know, who were on the right, who would, you know, be, try to begin the day by watching what they call the little Chris Christie porn, which was YouTube clips of you taking down the press corps a little bit. Not, you, you know, fairly, but you were tough and authentic, and it really came through. Do you think that in the culture that we have today that there's room for that? Is there room for that kind of like smart, pugilistic, not – it wasn't negative, but you were tough. You were tough on them. You were tough on the press. You were tough on teachers' unions. You were tough on a bunch of people who are not traditionally gotten tough on. Um, do you think this the – do you think that's a that's a that's ancient history now culturally? Or you think there's still a future for that? Uh, no, I think there's still a future for it um, if you do it authentically. Yeah, it's really who you are, um, and and that's why it came across. I think the way it did back then, uh, and I think it would come across the same way now. Now, are there different sensitivities now? Yes, yeah. um, are, but um, I think most. If you go back and look at most of what I said back in those days, yeah. um, most of that stuff would not even violate the the enhanced snowflake standards that we're in right now. 
Um, That's very true. You know, smart, smart and tough have to go together. When you have crazy and tough, um, that's what I think people don't want to see anymore. But smart yeah. and tough, I think they're always happy to see. I, I think so too. I, I, but I, I want to ask you a little bit about COVID because I heard um, you were on a, a, a segment of This American Life, National Public Radio, uh, and they got together a focus group of vaccine-resistant, vaccine-hesitant, um, even maybe suspicious, non-vaccinated people. And they sort of presented them a bunch of arguments and a bunch of like, well, here's why you should get it, here's why you should get it. And you sort of bat cleanup on that. And you told some really compelling stories. You told a really, really moving story, after which I think a huge portion of those people were convinced. You convinced them to get the vaccine. Um, and you did it on Zoom, too, by the way. I mean, we should just say that, but you weren't in the room. You were like, yeah, it was, it was this way. Um, would you, if you were governor, had you been Governor Christie at the time? Would you have had a vaccine mandate? Would you have a vaccine mandate? How would you get those people? How would you convince vaccine-resistant people to get the vaccine as a public citizen and not just as a private citizen? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, would you would you would be law, or would you just have a have a session like that, like you did on the radio? I would do it just the way I did it. Um, uh, I do it just the way I did it on that focus group. See, I, I think the mandate piece is just going from government. It's just going to make people more resistant um, and, and you know, think more and more, I don't want the government telling me what to do. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, as a conservative, I've always thought, you know, the, the governing should be done closest to the people and, and, and should push that down. So I don't think governors should be mandating that kind of thing. Um, so I've thought and I really felt after that focus group, Rob, that um, people want to be educated, not indoctrinated. And that's the difference. Even those people that day, when I told those stories, they changed their minds. Yeah. They're not people who are doctrinaire about this. They have legitimate concerns. Some of the concerns are a little outlandish, but they come from things they've read, you know, on the web and other places. Um, and, and so, you know, they, they but they hold those things genuinely they hold those concerns genuinely and i think our job and i think this is where both the trump administration and the biden administration have fallen down i don't think they've educated the public nearly enough about how much of this research has been being done for a decade before COVID even showed up one of the big things i've heard from people is they're concerned about the vaccine because they feel like it was rushed right right well when you know that the mrna um technology has been being researched for at least a decade, if not more, um, and worked on by scientists across the country and around the world, you start to become a little bit less concerned um, about that. So you need to have people walk through it. I also think the TV doctors have generally been a problem, whether that's Tony Fauci or Scott Gottlieb or, you know, the whole list, Sunjay Gupta, you know, I mean, they don't want to be lectured to by people that they don't think even practice medicine anymore. Right. What we should be doing is getting regular family practitioners from around the country on TV talking to people about their experience with their patients and why they're advising their patients, if they are, to take the vaccine, why they themselves are taking the vaccine. Those are things, Rob, that I think would be much more persuasive to vaccine-hesitant people 
um, than a government mandate. Because let's remember something else. You know, the government puts a mandate on that everyone needs to be vaccinated. How are you going to enforce that? Right. Remember, I used to, you know, when people would come to me with ideas of something they wanted me to do as governor, one of my first questions always was, well, how are we going to make sure that it happens? Because the last thing you want to look like as an executive leader is like a paper tiger. Right. Well, if you're going to go do something, you better make sure you, know, you can enforce it. I don't know how you'd enforce the vaccine mandate across the state as, as large um, from a population perspective and densely populated as New Jersey. I think it would be very hard. So you're making a really interesting point that it's not the vaccine. It's trust. Yeah. And there are plenty of good Americans who don't trust the vaccine because they don't trust the public health officials or the Biden. And honestly, there's good reason at this point for 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 Americans to have doubts, right? Sure, sure. And that's all I'm saying is like, there's 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 good reason for generalized doubt, but I don't think there's good reason for specific doubt on these vaccines. You know, one of the things I said to a friend earlier was that, you know, he, who himself was vaccine hesitant. And he said, there's not enough research. I said, we're in the midst of the largest clinical trial in world history, literally hundreds of millions of people are getting hundreds and millions of doses of this we have not seen yet any reaction from these folks that would cause you to be nervous about taking the vaccine i said to he said well you don't know what's going to happen in five years or ten years and i said you're right i don't but i also can tell you you don't know what's going to happen if you get covid it's so random and still so there's so little understanding in the medical community about it and it's short-term course and it's long-term effects that you you don't want to try it. So there's risk in everything in life. Um, but I think this reduces risk. The administration's messaging has been odd. I mean, there's Joe Biden, double jabbed, getting his booster, wearing a mask, and, and rolling up his sleeve to reveal an arm so hairy that I think people were vaccine hesitant because they thought it caused werewolfism. Uh, they've been bad at it. I agree. Of course, if you are a werewolf, you're covered with soft, silky fur, so it's easy to sleep. If you're a human being, you don't have that. You have to find something else like nice sheets, right? Well, my nice sheets are in the bedroom. And I would like to note also that the bedroom has a variety of things appointed that are just the way I like it. The place where I charge my phone is there. The place where I charge my watch is right there. The, the clock that I like is right there. Little details like that customize your life. It makes your life what it is, right? The little things we do all add up to the legacy that we leave behind. And Bowling Branch was started by a husband and wife team that wanted to create a textile company that cared about the details that would make their products last. That's why I like having their sheets with their details in the bedroom where I have mine. Bowling Branch, great company, dedicated to quality at every step. You will experience uncompromising comfort with the best-selling 100% organic cotton signature Hamda sheets. These sheets are designed and manufactured for maximum comfort and durability. No cutting corners. There are also no middlemen between you and Bowling Branch, so you get luxury quality for the fairest price. They stand behind their products, and they honor a 30-day, 30-night, worry-free guarantee. So what I like, and I keep saying this, this is true every week, right? I said last week that the sheets get better every time you wash them. I'm here to testify that having washed them, they're even better. Now, incrementally so. I mean, we're not talking fundamental change in the texture over the course of week to week. But no, I just know that unlike the other sheets that I used to have, they just get threadbare and rip, and the rest of it, these just get softer and more wonderful as the years go on. And yes, I mean years smooth sheets. 
overlooking the little details in your life, add something that really will make this detail sleep even better. Get sheets that are crafted to the highest standards from sourcing to packaging. To experience an entirely new standard of comfort, visit bowlandbranch.com. And you can get 15% off your first set of sheets with the promo code RICOCHET. 15% off your first set. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com. Promo code RICOCHET. And we thank Bowl and Branch for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. Peter? Hey, Governor, I'm speaking to you from California, where we just re- failed to recall a progressive governor who's doing a lousy job, and we failed to recall him by a lot because he raised enough money to turn his campaign around and run not against Larry Elder, but against Donald Trump. As recently as Ronald Reagan carried California in 80 and 84, and George H.W. Bush carried the state in 88, back in the 80s, New York was still in play. Now we have big, important states above all to me, California, of course, because I live here, but out of reach for the National Republican Party. Here in California, it's out of reach even for congressional seats, except for a few limited regions. You did something pretty remarkable. You managed to run and govern as a pretty conservative and very outspoken Republican in a blue state. How did you do that? And are there any implications for the Republican Party? I mean, I don't know how you feel, but I feel that fundamentally, honestly, it's not just bad politics, it's unpatriotic. For our party to say, California, 11% of the population, eh, we're going to have to learn to live without them forever. All right, look, I think there are implications for it, but it's not easy. It's not going to happen overnight. So let me say this. For, for instance, in my reelection, uh, which was a little bit like what Gavin Newsom just went through and the Republican Party went through, they'll be going through it again next year. Um, I got 51% of the Hispanic vote. And 29% of the African-American vote. That is staggering. Now, that didn't happen overnight. That happened over four years of me going to Hispanic neighborhoods and social clubs and events and and African-American churches and having town hall meetings. You know, I think Republicans generally are uncomfortable going places where they don't think they're going to be welcomed with open arms. I never worried about that. I remember going to a, uh, a town hall that I did in a church, an African-American church in Irvington, New Jersey. Now, Irvington is a medium-sized city in New Jersey that is 95% minority. It is majority African-American, but the top plurality is Hispanic, and only 5% of the population in Irvington is Caucasian. When I ran the first time, uh, in Irvington, I got a total of 430 votes. Um, John Corzine got over 4,000. Got it. Um, there, I, I stood up, and when I came out onto the stage for the town hall meeting in the church, I got very tepid applause and some booing. And uh, I asked my people to count how many people there were in the place. And there were 520 people there. So I said, by the way, this is a win for me no matter what you do. I said, because there are more people here today than actually voted for me in this city when I ran for <laughs> first time three years ago. I said, so we're making progress. 
And they all started to laugh. And we went from there. And we had some contentious back and forth then. But I was there. And I really do believe that one of the things that we've forgotten about in politics is it's harder to hate up close. Right. Right. And the further we are away from each other, the less time we spend with each other, the less time we expose even our ideas to each other that are different, that are in conflict. But they know that they're given with respect and seriousness and thought. You still can win people over. I mean, I'll give you another example, Peter. I'm the first pro-life governor in New Jersey's history since Roe versus Wade. There's not been another pro-life person elected to the governorship. And, and you know, the abortion issue, pro-choice versus pro-life in New Jersey, runs about 65-35 in favor of pro-choice. Right. You see. Yet I got elected twice as a pro-life governor. Public doesn't need to agree with you on every issue, but they need to believe that the, the the positions you have come from a genuine place, and that if they disagree with you on one, there's another one that they're going to agree with you on. And I think that's the model for us winning in a lot of different blue states. I think you see that with Larry Hogan in Maryland. I think you've seen it with Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, um, where you know they've taken some pretty traditional conservative positions on a lot of issues. And yet those two guys are both in the 70% approval rating today in Maryland and Massachusetts. So it can be done, um, but it takes work. And it and you have to do things differently than our party has done them before. I got I, Rob and James want to come back in, I know. Listen, I've got to give you my gut reaction to our conversation so far. You're talking about a game you love. You love politics, and you're damn good at it. And you've got all kinds of ideas about what conservatives can do, and you think you know how they should be done. You, I, I mean, you're not going to declare on the Little Ricochet podcast, for goodness sake, but you're not. This, I'm not talking to a man who's diving into corporate life and putting politics behind him. Am I, Governor? No. I mean, look, I, I'm not... You know, I'm not ready to retire from public life yet. It doesn't mean I'm going to run for president, but what it means is that I'm not, I'm still fascinated by all this. I still think that government is a place where you can make a huge difference in people's lives. And you're right about all the things you said. I do, I do love this. And, and I feel like I have certain God given skills and talents that um, make me pretty good at it. So, you know, if you find that, then I think it's a sin not to use, not to use it. Uh, certainly that's what my Sicilian grandmother would have told me, was, you know, God gives you a gift. It's a sin not to use it. Um, and she was the one who got me interested in politics in the first place. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I will continue to be interested in it for the rest of my life. And I'm certainly not ready to concede the field um, to others who I think um, may not necessarily bring as much success to our party or, or to our country. So can I, let's ask, let's talk about what you're doing right now. You're on, I can't remember the official name, but you're on the Republican redistricting something or other. And this is what? To raise money and provide legal support to challenges to Republican redistricting efforts, which are sure to come? Yes, and are coming right now. Um, it's the National Republican Redistricting Trust. 
It was established in 2017 by a number of prominent Republican uh, donors who felt like we were behind the curve, and we were, from the group that's headed by Barack Obama and Eric Holder, uh, supporting Democratic redistricting efforts, and we didn't have a national organization doing that. So folks like Charles Schwab and others stepped up to start to help to establish this. And about four or five months ago, um, Kevin McCarthy reached out to me and former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and asked if we would co-chair this together and be kind of the counter voices nationally to Obama and Holder on the issues that are going to come up over this course of this next year on redistricting. Um, and we'll be involved in some fundraising also, but more than anything else, it's about providing advice, counsel, and a public voice to the Republican view on redistricting. And so Mike and I agreed to do this together. And uh, it, so far, so good. I think we're having a, I know we're having a good time together doing it. And we're providing, I think, an effective um, counterweight to uh, President Obama and Eric Holder, which needs to be done. I was, in fact, in Minnesota yesterday. Um, they have a, a group called Integrity Minnesota, which runs the Republican efforts for redistricting in that state. And uh, Tom Emmer asked me, Congressman Emmer asked me to come out and speak to that group and give them advice. And so I flew out to Minnesota yesterday morning and flew back yesterday afternoon um, after meeting with them for a few hours. So, you know, we're going to be on the ground, Mike and I both making a difference with these groups and trying to provide the type of leadership that's necessary to make sure that the redistricting effort is fair and constitutional. Because if it's fair and constitutional, Republicans will win. Um, it's it's so, so guys, have one question because redistricting is something that we do, and gerrymandering is something the other guys do. That's usually how we how we <laughs> divide it up, right? But if I could ask about re even if we redistrict, we still, I mean, Republicans, I should say, conservatives, cons whatever the counts as that movement, still has trouble in the cities that are growing, still has trouble in the Dallas suburbs, still has trouble in now the Atlanta suburbs. Still has trouble in a lot of places that we didn't used to have trouble in, and you can cut the map up all you want, but if you're losing, you're losing. No, I agree, I agree with you, Rob. I don't think that redistricting alone makes you a majority party. Um, what what happens is redistricting, doing it the right way in a fair and constitutional way, um, at least levels the playing field a bit. But nothing replaces good candidates with a good message. Um, nothing replaces that. And in the end, um, we have to have good candidates with a good message who are well-funded. And if you have a fair map along with that, yeah. then I think you have a majority in the, in, in the House. Think about this. Obama and Holder Group sued in three states in the last cycle. Um, and in those three states, they picked up eight seats by the redrawing of the map after they sued. The margin right now is five. So they sued their way to a majority. Um, and, and those were suits in states like North Carolina and Pennsylvania um, and Florida, those three states. They picked up eight seats in those three states. That's their majority. So this is razor thin, very close. Um, and we need to be sure that we do this the right way and, and just provide a level playing field for our folks. If we do, we're going to do really well. Governor, so I've got to ask, you don't want to relitigate the past. But our side is getting hit every day with the Democrats saying Republicans are convinced this lie that they've lost the election 
Trump says we want, okay, you know where I'm going with this. Here's my theory. There are a lot of good Republicans who sense that something funny, funny stuff did happen in the 2020 election. But it didn't happen. The president just didn't get it. It didn't happen on election day. Democrats were changing rules through legis. It happened legally, and it happened in all kinds of rules changes in the year leading up to election day. And if we had had Chris Christie and Mike Pompeo running a well-funded organization to mount legal challenges, to publicize what was going on, some of it should have gone on. We did perhaps need to re readjust voting procedures in a time of lockdown. But, but something funny did happen, and honestly, it was a failure of the administration and of the Republican Party at the time not to start fighting a year before Election Day. Is that right? It is. It is. And let's, let's face it. The president and his campaign blew it. I mean, you know, the idea that when you saw COVID coming in March of 2020, and this is part of the problem, the president never took COVID seriously in the beginning. And that not only manifested itself from, a, from the perspective of public policy, but it manifested itself politically as well. Because if you took it seriously, you'd know from March or April forward that there were going to have to be changes in those laws and that in some instances, Democrats were going to try to take advantage of that to change things in a way that had nothing to do with COVID but could help advantage them in the election. The president raised over $1.2 billion for his campaign. How much did we spend on the legal effort? Not much. We did not put together a top-notch legal team. The Democrats did. They outmaneuvered us. That's not stealing the election. That's strategic failure. And let's face it, this game is not for the faint of heart. And so, you know, of course there was irregularities in the election, but there's irregularities in every American election. You know, I had a predecessor, Brendan Byrne, who was a Democratic governor in New Jersey, who passed away about two years ago. But when he was alive, he used to say, to folks that, that he made his wife promise that when he died, that she would bury him in Jersey City, New Jersey, so that he could remain active in politics. <laughs> so we know that there have been irregularities in elections, you know, for as long as elections have been held, but they were not dispositive here. The, the mistakes that were made that cost us the election were strategic in nature on the legal side, and strategic in terms of the way, in my view, the president conducted himself during the campaign. And and those two things um, were what cost us the election in 2020. Um, you can't say, you know, there was a ballot dump in, in, in Detroit when the president actually got a higher percentage of the vote in Detroit in 2020 than he did in 2016. Not just more votes, a higher percentage of the vote. He got a higher percentage of the vote in Philadelphia than he did in 2016. These are two places that the president has pointed to where the election was stolen from him. Well, that's a very ineffective steal if you let your opponent get a higher percentage of the vote than he did four years earlier. Um, so, you know, I, and that's why I think this stuff is useless um, for us to continue to grind over. Right, right. Listen, one last question. We've already kept you longer than we promised your staff that we would. So I don't know whether you're going to get cross with them, but for sure they're going to get cross with us. But I, there's one more. This is just one more big think question. Here's one of the many things I love about Chris Christie. You're good on the granular stuff, but you're good on the big think stuff, too. So Rob raised this point. I've already said, how do you get back, win back California? Cities. 
six of the seven biggest cities in Texas are run by Democrats. The sole exception is that Fort Worth, which still feels like a cowboy town in some ways. So I don't remember your numbers well enough, but I don't think you carried Newark. I don't think you carried Jersey City. Why are the cities so just? Why why do they elude? Why? What what's the registration in men in New York these days? Eight to one Democrat over Republican. I mean, it isn't even close to parity. Why should that be the case? And what the heck can we do about? Again, to me, it's almost unpatriotic. You just can't say, in a country where urban centers are the center of uh, of all of education and media and finance, you just can't say, "Oh, the hell with them." You just can't do that. Well, no, and, and look, but I also think we need to be realistic. Um, you know, the way our politics has evolved over the past 60 years, uh, urban centers have become very dependent upon government funding. Republicans are not usually talking about increasing spending on things, with the exception of the Trump years. Um, so, you know, we, we are not going to be the fan favorite in a place where they're very, very dependent on in, ever-increasing government spending as one issue. But I think that we shouldn't look at trying to win those cities. What we should look at is trying to, to cut down on the margins in those cities. You know, so, for instance, I mean, you know, by cutting down on the margin that I lost by between 2009 and 2013 in the city of Camden, I wound up winning Camden County. Did you really? Yes. In 2013. Wait a minute. Camden County is right across from Philadelphia, right? Right across the Delaware River from Philadelphia. Um, And in a very, you know, er, Camden City um, is a very urbanized city. Um, Atlantic City, very urbanized city. Um, I actually won Atlantic City in 2013 and won Atlantic County. Um, You know, you can, what you can do is go in there and reduce these margins as a conservative Republican. Um, And if you do that, when you add to it what we have traditionally won in the suburbs and the exurbs, that's the way you win elections. In the end, um, I'm not looking to make history in the election. I'm looking to win the election so I can make history in government. And so what I care about the most is winning. And I think we've not been focused enough on winning recently. Um, And we've been focused more on ego um, and focused more on uh, you know, bickering, then we've been focused on winning. And so we need to refocus on winning. And believe me, there are enough people who already have regret, as those poll numbers that you talked about in the beginning indicate, with Joe Biden, who already have regret that it is open for us to win. But, you know, I, I had a, a political science professor who taught me in college, when your political adversaries in the midst of committing suicide, there's no reason to commit murder. The result is the same. <laughs> and he said, when you try to commit murder, sometimes you can make mistakes, right? So the, the Democrats are handing us some gifts right now. What we need to do is not start continuing to harp on the past because, let's face it, as you said in the Gavin Newsom in, uh, you know, introduction, <laughs> you know, Gavin Newsom won because Donald Trump's still out there talking about 2020 and keep, keeping himself relevant that way. And so you can tag Larry Elder with Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump's not talking about tomorrow. He's not talking about the mistakes of the Biden administration. He put out a press release two days ago talking about the 2020 election fraud. Um, you know, as long as we're doing that, 
um, we're not going to get focused back again on winning. So I think on cities, it is about getting in there, getting to know people, getting some of their votes. And then, you know, when you start winning elections, you know, I always said, you know, my first election, I got 48.5% of the vote um, in a three-way race. But when I would travel around the state in the two or three months during the transition, by my count, I got about 68% of the vote. Because <laughs> right. everybody came up and told me they voted for me, you know? Right, right. <laughs> the voting, I don't know what they were counting <laughs> I got two-thirds. People like to be the winner, too. And so remember that as well. Peter. I think, you know, you, you have to be able to go in there and let them get to know you, let them see you perform. And over time, I think we can make progress. Do I think we're going to become a majority party in the cities? I don't. But I do think we can become a significant plurality in the cities. And when we do that, then, then we're winning elections statewide and nationwide again. Right now, we're not. Hey, Governor, we'll let you, go with the, let you go with this. You were talking about cities. You were just in Minneapolis. That's where I live. I'm in Minneapolis, which is cobalt blue. And I don't just mean the tips of our fingers because it got cold the last couple of days. It was beautiful right before you got here. I'm so sorry it was yesterday. <laughs> but anyways, you may have noticed uh, Minneapolis is kind of in the middle of the whole continent. We require everything to be trucked to us, to be dragged by rail and the rest of it. And our shelves are starting to look a little bare because everything's backed up in California. All those billions of pounds of plastic the Chinese turned out can't get here. Uh, you could drag things through the Panamax, through the canal, and get them to Jersey, couldn't you? How's Port Newark doing? You could. That's why we're the third largest port in the, in the world, um, you know, in, in, in New Jersey. Um, and that's why when I was governor, um, the, the, the Bayonne Bridge, which was going to be an impediment to those new big, huge ships that are coming through the new improved Panama Canal, wouldn't have been able to get to our port, but now they can. Um, but that takes... To do that, it takes a governor who cares about the private sector and who wants to partner with them to increase the port resources enough to be able to take on that increased volume, with a lot of which would want to leave California right now because of the very problems you're talking about. Um, but unfortunately, we have a governor right now in New Jersey, my successor, Phil Murphy, who he, he campaigned, if you can believe this, fellas, he campaigned in 2017 saying, I want to make New Jersey the California of the East. Uh, that was w absolutely one of his punchlines in his speeches. Uh, he is, uh, I, I guess they call those folks progressive now. I still call them liberal. He's incredibly liberal, and he's not spending the time on the port stuff that he should because there's an amazing business and jobs opportunity for New Jersey, and we lag behind most of the country in job recovery since COVID right now. He's not doing it. Um, because he cares much more about um, teaching critical race theory in school um, and enhancing sex education for fifth graders. Um, so that those are, you know, his top priorities. Oh, and by the way, he also passed a law that said that if you, um, if you're below 18 and you get caught with marijuana by the police, the police cannot tell your parents. Whoa, I'm a parent. So, so those. You know, those are the big issues he's working on. So why would you ever deal with the port issue when you can work on such important issues like that that are really, you know, going to change American society? Yeah, that's well, almost well, it would have changed me in high school, that's for sure. i got to be honest. <laughs> you changed the right, well, uh, well, the ports will take care of themselves, right? All these people are handed all of this seed corn from previous generations, and they pop it in the microwave and then wonder why they're hungry an hour later.
Hey, it's been a great it's been a great chat. We'd love to have you on again. And you know, the next time I, I don't want to have to drag everything out of you like we do this time. It's just like pulling teeth. I'll try. I'll try to come out of my shell. Yeah, please do. It's been great. <laughs> Governor Chris Christie, we appreciate you coming on the podcast today. We look forward to you doing the bit with Peter Robinson, and uh, it's been great. Thank Good you, luck. Donna. I appreciate Good the time very Thank much. Thank you. You take, take care. Great weekend. We will. The, um, the phrase, what are you talking about, Robin, who used to listen to Chris Christie, you know, the Christie porn? Christie porn, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's more like it, it, a, a banquet of exquisite cuts of, of red meat, is it not? I mean, we always talk about red meat. And it's like, well, people say that like they're throwing something bloody on the, on the table that you don't want to eat, as opposed to something that's been hand-trimmed, extra-cured, mm. and still has robust flavor, the likes of which oh, you never find. Oh, hard to find, hard good. to find good red yeah. meat. Well, no, you know, it's going to be. Frankly, I mean, because I've been looking at what's at the stores and meat is up, prices are up, everything's up. And so you wonder, okay, I'm going to be probably paying more for less quality. Who knows what stuff throws at you life-wise? And you want to be ready for it, right? You want to have good meat. It's not enough to just have some miserable, you know, grisly thing to serve your guests. Hey, if it's an emergency, an impromptu gathering, or even just a long day that makes you dread a visit to the supermarket to see the bare shelves. Whenever you need a great-tasting meal, you can trust Butcher Box. Butcher Box is in your corner. They deliver what you need right to your door. Each box they send has 9 to 11 pounds of meat. All of your choosing. Options like 100% grass-fed finished beef, free-range organic chicken, humanely raised pork, wild-caught lobster tails, <laughs> and wild-caught Alaska salmon, or sugar-free bacon. There's, there's, you can't go wrong with any of this stuff, frankly. And what I like is the fact that it is there. Now, I got a lot of frozen stuff in my freezer, frankly. Uh, and some of the stuff I got on sale and throw it in there just in case there's an emergency. But then there's the butcher box stuff that you got, that exceptional finished beef that you know is there for a special event, not just a, an ordinary thing, but to really make your plate sing. The process of getting this stuff to your door, it's simple. Once you've signed up, you choose your box and your delivery frequency. They offer five boxes. There are four curated box options as well as the popular custom box, so you get exactly what you and your family love. ButcherBox ships your orders, frozen at the peak of freshness, and packed in a 100% recyclable box. And shipping is always free. In the end, you enjoy great-tasting, high-quality meat delivered right to your door. And right now, ButcherBox is offering our listeners, which would be you, ground beef for life. Ground beef for life. You heard me right. Every order for the life of your membership, you get two pounds of ground beef. You'll never have to shop for it again. So now's your chance. It's only available for a limited time, so hop on this. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash ricochet and get two pounds of ground beef free in every order for the life of your membership. That's ground beef for life. But you got to log on to butcherbox.com slash ricochet to claim the deal. That's butcherbox.com slash ricochet. And we thank ButcherBox for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. Gentlemen, one thing we didn't get to, it may have been alluded to earlier, I can't remember if it was in our jovial little pre-show chat or not. Uh, David French and Jonah Goldberg are talking, hey, maybe it's time for a third party, because apparently we need new ways to lose that look a lot like the old ways. Uh, <clears throat> you just said everything that needs to be said, James, about that idea, in my opinion. Now, Rob may have a different view. Well, I know. I mean, I... You know, it's funny because like we, uh, I mean, I like those guys very much, and I think they're very smart. Yes, same um, here. Same here. But we still like that. Yeah, but there's that we just had, a, you know, a clinic. We were just taught a clinic on modern American politics. Um, a, a, a 
of the super pugilistic variety. I mean, he's no shrinking violet, Chris Christie. He punches back. He punches hard. Um, I would. I don't want to think of. I mean, if you're Marco Rubio, your political future, for a lot of reasons, in the last Republican, you know, in 2020, was uh, un was absolutely undone, and he mopped the floor with him because um, Rubio wasn't paying attention to his own answers. And if you remember that it was the famous debate in New Hampshire where Chris Christie asked him a question and Rubio kept answering the same way. And Chris Christie went after him and said, you just said the same thing. And it pretty much ended Chris, uh, Rubio's – really uh, really his, his, his campaign. And I mean so this guy's tough, and, I, and he's no shrinking violet, and he seems like he's interested in building a party that he can you know, proudly represent and proudly lead. So um, while I think theoretically you can look at numbers and sort of think to yourself, uh, maybe, maybe there needs to be a different party. Maybe this Republican Party is just too wrapped up with Donald Trump. But on the other hand, we just spent 30 minutes with a guy who feels like, sounds like he's not buying that either. But, and the practical part of it is it's really, really hard. You've got to be on ballot in all 50 states. And you got a whole lot of money before you even have a, camp, even have a, a candidate. Um, you know, there's a reason why it kind of evolved to two parties because it's sort of like that's kind of the American way. It's like, let's see if we can simplify this a little bit. You know, I agree with every word you said. And I, I put a little gloss on James's. Although I, I still, James, they, we need a new party that can lose. No, no, uh, that's all really all that it comes to. But we know Jonah, and we, I don't know David French as well, but I've known Jonah for years. They're thinking reasonable thoughts, but I believe the premise is that the whole Republican Party is so frightened of Donald Trump that the nomination is his and that Trump is running and that the nomination is his right. and that the rest of the country will reject him all over again. And that is just, just their premise. And if that's true, then what they say follows maybe you do need a separate organization maybe you do need maybe you lose for a cycle okay there is no need to think that way if chris christie gets into the race there is no need to think that way if ron DeSantis gets into the race or tom cotton gets into the race my reading is that the nomination is not donald trump's for the taking there are no. tough smart talented candidates who are willing to take him on. I'm not even saying which one I'm, I mean, I just, no, no, as I you know, we on this show, we tend to fall in love with the, with, the, with the candidate we're talking to, and boy, do I like Chris Christie a lot. But I want an honest process. I think that's, honestly, that, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I think that's really all that Jonah and David French well, want. They want ask, a contest. No, yeah, I ask think yourself. No, they want opinion. they want the party to back away from a variety of positions. They want it to be less popular. Oh, I see. If you, if you okay. listen to Jonah, he doesn't like the populism in the party. He describes populism and defines it in ways that other people may not, or may not see the most to see that it's as pernicious as he believes. But he believes that it's become statist and uh, that it's uh, government power. Okay, if it's our side, uh, that it's become beholden to a mob, et cetera, et cetera. So he thinks you need something that's a little bit more intellectual and high toned and can be guided in more alignment with the classic ideas of the conservative movement. But, uh, but, but I, don't, I don't think that's necessarily the wrong. The, the problem is that American politics, the politics of it, the capital P politics of it, they're trying to win you know, in Camden, to use our, our, our former guest as an example. 
you know, there's like, I don't know what they, they, all those words, those are big words. You know, it's like if you're a, a, a politician in New Jersey or somewhere, like, stop it with the big words. I don't do big words. I just, I go to places, I meet people, and I try to persuade them that my, you know, conservative economics and conservative policy, policies are the right ones. And I have a feeling that, um, that, I mean, you know, what, what, what can, I, you close your eyes and imagine that dais in Iowa, that day, or that first debate in New Hampshire among the Republicans, and you're going you're gonna to see Mike Pence, and you're going to see Mike Pompeo, and you're probably going to see Chris Christie, and I'm sure you're going to see Ron DeSantis. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think yeah, any of those— And these are not big government Republicans. No, right? and they're also no. not guys—they're also guys who've seen Donald Trump up close. So there, there's no—you can't— And they think—they all know they can take—or they all believe they can take it. Believe that they can take it. And more than that, if you're Mike Pence, if you're— Pompeo, even if you, I mean, you're Chris Christie for a long time, you, you can say things about Donald Trump that come from your own personal experience with him that may um, Very cause some of his current supporters to rethink their support. I'll just leave it at that. I'm not really supposed to talk about Donald Trump, but I'm, that's what I would say. Just strategically, I think it'd be very difficult to be up there as the former president talking about how your former vice president and yourself and your personally chosen secretary of defense are telling lies about how um, unfit you are. Well, wait a minute. Do you, are, are you creating a scenario where Donald Trump turns on people that he had previously hired? I, I just I can't, I can't yeah. see it. Okay. I can't see it. Speaking of being a, speaking right, of right. being, the last time Donald Trump was in a political debate, he lost the election. That's what happened when he debated Joe Biden. Well, now that we've just assured that the comments will be 90% about this and 10% about Christie. Right. Sorry, I, I broke my uh, own rule. Okay. I'll never okay. I won't talk about another for another year. When you said up there on the dais, up there was what William Shatner did. This He didn't go into space, but, you know, I'm going to give it to him. He uh, slipped the certain no, bonds what, of what, – What counts as space? I thought, I thought once, you, once you leave the atmosphere behind, that counts as space. I think there's a line you got to get across. I think you got to – Oh, is there? There's a there's a certain altitude that you have to do, and and uh, but I'm not going to quibble about that. Anyway, he experienced weightlessness, right? That that part we know, right? Which for a man of his gravity is is uh, uh, because he is a <laughs> he is he is a <laughs> man who is who, who is avoir de poids, his density and his ego. Um, I I find the guy delightful, and I say that as somebody who interviewed him once, and it was the hardest thing I ever did in my professional career. Why? But I still I. Because he was mulish, because he was he he was he was touchy, he was prickly, and I didn't ask a single question about Star Trek. I've told this story before. I, I came to this interview with a whole bunch of stuff about stuff, early things that he did that I wanted to just. He made a movie with Roger Corman in which he is a a, a preacher who comes to town to stir up racial hatred, and he's great. He's he's just has this charismatic malevolence. He's fantastic. So I wanted to ask him about that. What was the name of that picture? Do you remember? The, outs the Outsider or something like that? I can't Got remember. It. Just Got Google it. Shatner and Corman. And so I wanted to talk about, you know, the, the, whether or not he, he, he felt uh, that he'd missed a career as a heavy. Because he's, he's a good man. He's law and order. He's Captain Kirk. He's T.J. Hooker. He's Barbary. He, what, you know, what if you'd been the bad guy? Uh, he wanted to talk, and I understand this, about the new show that he was doing with Henry Winkler, where they traveled around and ate food and got gas. And I got that. We, I mean, we're going to get to that. This is not a long interview. Um, but it was just the whole thing was – I just – I felt 
like I was really taxing him by asking him to discuss some of these, 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 his work, which is kind of what the interview is about. Anyway, he, he was happy to talk about his horses and something else. And then I spoiled the latest Star Trek movie for him, which is still a highlight of my life because um, he hadn't seen it. And I gave away the ending that had to do with him. I actually spoiled a Star Trek movie for Captain Kirk. So there, that was my, <laughs> was my payback at the end of the interview. But it was great to see him go up and beaming and smiling. It's fantastic that he's 90. It just reminded me, if 1968, 69, if you told me as a 10-year-old boy, in 2021, Shatner's going to be up in space, I would have said, of course, why get that? I'm probably going to be living on the moon or something. We're going to have bases there, aren't we? The idea that we would not have yet gotten to the moon and that it would, that the idea that people would still be celebrating Shatner in 2021 and Star Trek in 2021, it would have been absolutely wonderful news to me in 1968. But it also made me, made me wonder if we had accomplished anything else in the interim that we still had to be talking about this. But we didn't accomplish enough to drive Shatner or Trek off of the popular culture. So everybody applauded when he got up and everybody loved the beautiful speech when he got down and groaned when Jeff Bezos cut him off because it was time to drink champagne. Uh, <laughs> anyway, he's 90, and, and my dad at 90 could have gone up. Um, Peter, I know that you're not a space guy. But, no, no, but if you, I'm, but not, if you were not, if, I'm not a spend my money on space guy. I don't okay. care if Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. In fact, I'm delighted by that. Really, I am. You know, Rob, something you said before about um, – we were talking about populism. I'm going to bring this back to that to close it up. Jay and, 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 and Jonah, J.D. Vance had a tweet where he, J.D. Vance had a tweet where he said that we should confiscate all the money of the Ford Foundation and give it to the people who's been, who've been hurt by their policies. And I think that's what Jonah is referring to because Jonah hated the tweet. I think it's stupid too, but he, I think that Vance was kind of making a point here that the left is always talking about confiscation. When you mentioned Bezos, they want to take all of Bezos' money, they want him to liquidate everything, and then they want to tax him on it, and then they take away the rest. There shouldn't be billionaires. There shouldn't be any of these rich people. We should just take the money and give it away. And Vance was sort of saying the same thing, that, uh, well, if, you're, if we're talking about the legality of confiscation, here's a big pot of money. And what's more, Jeff Bezos created jobs. The Ford Foundation over the last few years has advocated for policies that have hurt the poor. So I don't think that Vance was necessarily being serious about that. But it is being, being a big statist conservative who wants to use the instruments of government to direct things. Well, then I say it's spinach and to hell with it. And that's all I have for this show, ladies and gentlemen. Rob, Peter, closing thoughts? <laughs> I say it's spinach and I say to hell with it. James Thurber, what year? Uh, yeah. No, not, not Thurber. Oh, it's not God. Thurber. I, I think it was oh, Steig. It's not Thurber? I thought that was a famous no. Thurber cartoon. No, mm -hmm. I think it's Steig um, or Hoff. Hmm. It's either Steig or Hoff. Oh, um, really? Yeah, it's a great – we'll have to – I'll let that out there. I'll, I'll stake my cartoon historian reputation wow. that it's either Steig or Hoff. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great cartoon. It, Peter, did you – when you were a kid, did you read Thurber? Did you look at Thurber cartoons and think that you were seeing this wonderful, sophisticated window into a world that someday you would join? I subscribed to The New Yorker when I was in college because I was trying to learn how to write. Well, and some English professor was – no, he was dead by then. But then then also a list of books of examples of prose style, Life with Ross, which was James Thurber's yes. memoir of The New Yorker. I read that maybe when I was 18 or 19. Again, fr freshman year of college, I sort of had this New Yorker encounter. 
which is one reason what's happened to that magazine is so distressing to me now. But yes, yes, I became a Thurber fan long after he was dead. A typical timing on my part, by the way. <laughs> and Rob, were you a Thurber lover? I know that you probably, as a, as a situation comedy student, know that there was a single season made on the works of Thurber. Yeah, I was trying to... Um, I, I was a huge Thurber fan. I mean, I, he was a brilliant writer and, and, and really super spare, too, <clears throat> which I kind of like. I admire. I, I don't write that way, so it's always been, you know, it's a... It's a it's amazing to watch somebody do to read some as he writes so such spare use gets a lot in there and like kind of like a robert benchley type too in a lot of ways mm. not a lot of words but a lot of laughs benchley wrote more thurber you're right yeah. wrote less and thurber was angry that he didn't get credit for the writing that he did he was bitter towards the end of his life that he didn't get the nobel or the pulitzer or something else he had a very you successful know. friend named elliot nugent who did lots of great things and thurber Never, you know, we remember Thurber, but whether or not we're sort of over exaggerating his cultural relevance at the time, I think perhaps we are. Although you know, Thurber, Thurber, you know, Thurber you know, or E.B. White, who's who, who lasts, who stands up better? E.B. White, E.B. White, E.B. Yeah. White, right? But nobody seven. gives awards to the funny people. Like if you write comedy, if you write funny, jo funny novels, funny story, nobody, you're not going to get a Nobel. That's not an especially painful point with you, Rob, by any chance. It is what it is. You just you know who's going into the business, you know. But it is Dave, true. You don't, you don't get it. Dave Barry got the Pulitzer Prize. I'll go with this. I'll leave with this. Yes, Thurber was a great writer, but man, that guy could not draw. And I'm serious. <laughs> oh, but that's part of the charm. He could not draw. I will leave that uh, up to you if you want to dispute that. That's what the comments are for at Ricochet 4.0. Join right now so we can cobble again together enough chuckles to get Ricochet 5.0 going someday. But in the meantime, it needs no improvement. It's perfect as it is. Right, guys? Flawless. Um, no, it's not perfect. It's, it's, it's cacophonous, and it's noisy, and it's interesting, and it's sort of like life. If life's not, if it was perfect, it'd be boring, it's not, and it's never boring. It's sort of perfectly imperfect, though. Yeah, don't I guess you? so. Yeah, well, I'm you just giving that much. I'm All being right, semantic. Right. Yeah, but it's uh, but you know <laughs> we're not we're not striving for perfection. We're striving for um, fascination. And fascinating it is. I'll see everybody in the comments. Usually, I show up at about eleven o'clock at night and head over to the member feed and uh, mix it up and say this, that, or the other, and leave some stuff because it's always great. That's the one place on the internet where I comment. How about that? It's been great. Chris Christie made the show, and you guys were fantastic as usual. Everybody who's listening, superlatives heaped everywhere like mounds of delicious sugar with sprinkles, and we will see everybody at Ricochet. So, gentlemen, <laughs> next week. Next week, next week boys. Here comes a fireman. Here comes a car. Here comes a wrench. Here comes a car. It's going on forever. It ain't ever going to stop. Everybody wants to be the Everybody wants to be the man at the top. Everybody wants to be the man at the top now. Name your gun, son, and choose your job. Everybody wants to be the man at the top. Rich man, poor man, every man thinks Dr. Lord and MC. One thing in common, they all Everybody wants to be the man at the top. Everybody wants to 
Join the conversation. I'm just trying to get out and I'm babbling like